This is a Cross Grace Lutheran Church sermon podcast. On March 11th, 2020, we gathered to worship for the second of our Lenten midweek worship services. This year's midweek series focuses on learning about and practicing spiritual disciplines designed to raise our awareness of God's presence and love. Pastor Mark Havel guided us through the practice of fasting. A little bit from Matthew chapter 6, just verses 16 through 18. Jesus said, And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. The Gospel of the Lord. Did anyone fast before coming here tonight? Good. I didn't, my goal was to not eat until worship, which is a thing. It's the first time I ever learned about a way to fast was to make Sunday morning's um, Sabbath communion your first meal of the day. That was my plan for tonight. I stopped eating last night at 10-ish, and I was so hungry and mindless about it that when we were standing in the fellowship room praying and getting ready to eat, I just got in line with everyone and went through and had rice with everyone else for dinner. So I didn't get to make Holy Communion my first meal of this day, which was my but also a teaching moment for me and maybe for you too. Making communion on Sunday morning, the first meal of the day, is not a difficult thing to do for me because I rarely eat breakfast anyway. And because Holy Communion happens early enough on a Sunday morning and is followed shortly thereafter by whatever donuts and pastries and muffins and cookies most Lutherans have so faithfully weaved into our Sunday morning ritual, I can make it happen, not eat till Holy Communion. All of that is to say that that kind of fasting isn't really all that much of a sacrifice, skipping breakfast for an hour or so and feasting then on donuts, I mean. Today was a little more of a stretch, like I said. Which is also to say there are many ways and various degrees to which one can fast. Minimally, you could simply abstain from a specific kind of food for a period of time, which many people do or try to do during the season of Lent, right? Pizza, ice cream, chocolate, whatever it is for you that's worth sacrificing. You could choose to eat nothing and drink only water or juice for a period of time. You could prepare for or baby step your way into a longer fasting practice by skipping a meal or two now and then. And then by fasting for a 24-hour period, perhaps, like from noon to noon. That way you get to sleep through about eight hours of hunger pangs. Some people 
might even progress, and they do, to a number of days without eating. I've never tried it. Don't do any of this, of course, without knowing about your body and about your health and with permission from your doctor even if you're going to take this to an extreme. But the truth is, most of us, as far as I can tell, can go longer than we're used to, longer than we're comfortable with, without eating like we're used to. And we can exercise our faith and experience some meaningful spiritual growth when we do this fasting thing. And it seems like Jesus knew this. See, it's meaningful to know that fasting as a spiritual practice, like every other spiritual exercise that we're invited to practice as followers of Jesus, fasting is not lifted up as a command from our Creator. It's never lifted up as something we have to do or are ordered to do. But it's also meaningful to know that fasting as a faith practice, is mentioned by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the same breath as he preaches and teaches about praying and about giving. I didn't make that up. Someone smarter and more faithful than me named Richard Foster noticed that and wrote about it in a really great book. Anyway, that bit of Matthew chapter 6 that we just heard is sandwiched in between Jesus teaching about the Lord's prayer on one hand and his instruction about not storing up treasures in heaven. In other words, Jesus assumes that God's people will be about fasting just as he assumes that we will faithfully pray the Lord's Prayer. And just as he also assumes that we will faithfully give away our money and our stuff and our things. Jesus assumes it because Jesus fasted himself, which we read about in Scripture too, like that time he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights before the devil tempted him in the wilderness to turn some stones into bread. And fasting was a thing for some other important heroes of our faith, too. Moses, Elijah, Daniel, King David, the Apostle Paul, too. The practice of fasting, though, just doesn't seem to be engaged by most of the Christians I know, like it used to be, or like it is in other places and other faith traditions in the world. We know that Muslims fast from dawn until sunrise, right? Sunset throughout the month of Ramadan. Faithful Jews fast during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and so on. So maybe we leave fasting to the monks and the mystics and the Muslims like it's supposed to be reserved for the uber-religious or the hyper-faithful or for someone else but not me so much of the time. Or maybe we don't bother with it because it's only meant for certain times of the liturgical year like Lent and it is a meaningful discipline for a time such as this. Or maybe we don't do it because it's hard, and it takes practice, and work, and discipline, and maybe because our food and our drink are far too easy to come by for most of us. 
refusing to turn stones into bread, pales in comparison to being hungry and driving by the McDonald's drive-thru, right? Or passing by Frosty Boy on opening day, or foregoing the leftover pizza that sits on your countertop, or a refrigerator full of your favorite things. And I think our aversion to fasting as a practice has something to do, more than a little bit to do, with our distaste for being hungry, our unfamiliarity with being hungry, our inability to go without, our assumption that fasting is all or only about sacrifice, suffering, or self-imposed misery. But what if we could view the practice of fasting instead as a Marie Kondo-style method of organizing our physical and our spiritual selves for a period of time. Do you know who Marie Kondo is? Marie Kondo is the Japanese queen of organizing who's written books. She's hosted a Netflix series teaching a method and a mentality for organizing your home based on whether the things and the stuff that fill your rooms bring you joy or are useful or necessary or not. And she encourages the purging of anything and everything that does not meet those criteria. Does it bring you joy? Is it useful? Is it necessary? or not. So I wonder if a time of fasting doesn't invite us to consider what we put into our bodies with the same perspective. Does what we eat and drink bring us joy? Not happiness, not instant gratification, not frosty boy kind of joy. Is what we eat and drink necessary? Is what we eat and drink useful for our body's health and wellness? Does how or what we eat honor the world around us? For example, sometimes fasting might remind us of and bind us in solidarity with the poor and the hungry in the world around us. Something like one in eight people in the United States live below the poverty line, which amounts to a household income of $25,000 or so for a family of four. I didn't do the math, but I'm curious to check that against our own grocery bill at the Hable House. Sometimes, fasting might be an exercise in gratitude for the abundance that surrounds and that fills us most of the time. Here's a picture of me with my 15-year-old Jackson. This was taken a couple of months ago, so he's probably two inches taller than that now. This is a picture of me with my 15-year-old friend in Fondwa, Haiti whose name is Davidson. 
Jackson is not just strapping and strong and handsome because he throws axes and comes from a really good gene pool. He is all of those things because he eats well and often and abundantly. And Davidson isn't just short or small for his age. He's seriously undernourished over the course of his 15 years from lack of money and food and resources. Sometimes fasting might be an exercise in gratitude for the abundance that surrounds us and that fills us so much of the time. But fasting is not just about challenging our world view, or even mostly about that, really. Fasting is a way to worship in and of itself. Fasting is a way to take away that which we need to live life in this world and focus our heart's desire instead, with gratitude, on the God of our creation whom we need to live life in this world and the next. And all of this is why I wanted to make Holy Communion the focus for our time together tonight and connect it with the practice of fasting, whether you were able to make that happen today or not. One blessing of the practice of fasting, in this case, which really makes God the center and focus and aim of it all, is our very real longing for the sacrament when we do. Our hungering for bread and wine. Our anticipating the taste of food and drink in mouths that haven't had that for a while. And being filled then, literally, with the body and blood of Christ and all it represents for us, being actually physically satisfied by the tasting, the chewing, the drinking, the swallowing, experiencing the sensation of what was once parched becoming quenched, what was hungry for real becoming full, what was empty becoming filled up, our mouths and our minds, our stomachs and our souls and our spirits, too. And this is different than how most people wonder about what it means to fast, I think. I mean, we tend to consider fasting as nothing more and nothing less than this exercise in sacrifice or self-flagellation, which it is to some extent, but it's not all or only or even the most important thing about going without food. If we can learn to approach it differently with an eye for what it will add to our walk of faith, my hope is that we might give it a go more often throughout the course of our lives. So I'd like to invite you to receive Holy Communion now with a hungry heart whether you have feasted or fasted in preparation for worship this evening. I'd like us to gather around the table with parched souls, feeling the emptiness within us that is waiting to be filled by the only thing 
that can quiet the pangs and the longings and the needs that are known to each of us in as many ways as there are people in the room. My hope is that we'll come to the table, this table, flowing with milk and honey, bread and wine, body and blood, that we'll come hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that we'll come longing for forgiveness, aching for mercy, yearning for peace, desiring justice, that we will empty ourselves enough to crave, like so many hungry children, the kind of love and the kind of grace and the kind of hope that can only come and that is on the way, thanks to the life and to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, a full measure, pressed down, shaken together. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, bread for the world. and it's been broken for you. Do this, eat this, be filled by this for the remembrance of me. And then again after supper, from the table prepared before him in the presence of his enemies, even, he took the cup, the cup, overflowing with grace and mercy like so much water that had become so much wine that had become blood even in his name. He blessed it. He gave it for each and every one of them to drink. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you. It's poured out for all people, rolling down like the waters of justice, like an ever-flowing stream of righteousness for the fulfillment of the law for the sake of the world. Do this, drink this, be filled by this for the remembrance of me. sprung the trap of my selfish 